Welcome to VR in Education. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of VR in Education. In today's episode, we're so fortunate to be talking to Emily Jolly again and Kwaku Anning. Emily has been on the show before, and actually, kudos to her, is one of the most listened to episodes so far. She's CEO of VR content creation app, Zoe. And Kwaku Anning is an educator, he's a connector, and a real deep thinker. So a pioneer in this space, and he has a wealth of knowledge working with students and teachers on this really hard premise, which is using VR for not just consumption, but content creation and design thinking. So welcome to the show, Emily and Kwaku. Thanks for having Thanks, us. Greg. Nice to be back. Because Emily's been on the show before, I'm going to start with you, Kwaku. What's your origin story when it comes to getting excited and interested in VR and virtual worlds? Well, uh, there, there's. I think it's 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 twofold. The first was uh, I was working at this really uh, uh, progressive. I know it sounds ironic, but progressive independent school in Memphis, Tennessee. And I had heard a little bit about VR, and then one of the students was very interested in learning more about it, and the head of school came to me and he was like, hey, uh, what can you do with this? I was like, I don't know. Uh, let's, <laughs> we can sort of figure something out. Um, and so um, we, uh, you know, we bought a couple of headsets, and then I sort of combined that with building out a club for the students. Um, where I would allow them to explore, um, allow them, create space for them to explore the headsets um, and using uh, the framework of design thinking. And Mary Cantwell, I don't know if you're familiar with her. She used to be at the school in, um, in Georgia, um, and she'd come up with this whole design thinking framework for teachers. And so I, I basically just sort of like laid it all out on my desk. I had the headset there and I had the, um, and I had her framework there and I sort of plotted out a couple of months of what I thought the club should be like. And, um, initially I was trying to learn unity alongside the kids with the rollerball program. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with that, but it used to be like the opening thing you would learn when you were, when you were trying to learn uh, unity, it was like their first programming piece. Um, and so, you know, over the weekend I was like, all right, guys, you guys are going to work on this. I'm going to work on this. We're going to come back in. We're going to discuss it. And then we came back in and they'd all finished the program and I'd gotten a third of the way through and it occurred to me, wait a minute, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a grown man with a family and responsibilities. These kids could spend six hours a day on this and I couldn't. And, and I was like, oh, I'm not supposed to learn this alongside them. I'm supposed to facilitate them learning it and them creating stuff. And so my job was really just to be the person who found them space, gave them materials, um, brought in experts, which leads to the second part of this story, which involves, ironically, meeting Emily at the HTC offices. Um, and at the time, Emily, what was the name of the soft? What was it? Wasn't Zoe? What was it called back oh, then? God, it was Spatial Stories, and it was a Spatial Stories. Yes, plugin, a plugin for Unity. That's right. That's right. So, uh, with David Romero 
introduced me to Emily. He's like, you should talk to her. You guys do similar things. And then, and, and so Emily showed me spatial stories. I'm like, Hey, this is great. I have a kid who's working on a project and the, you know, we're going to probably get into this, but the bar of entry of creating in VR was understanding how uh, to uh, code within C sharp. And I didn't know how to do that. And the students didn't know how to do that. But I saw spatial stories. I was like, wait a minute, this is great. This is this really additive piece um, where students would, wouldn't have the barrier of coding preventing them from uh, capturing what was in their imagination and being able to sort of produce it within a 3D environment. And so I, I you know, after meeting Emily, I, I emailed her or called you. I forget which one. I was like, hey, I have a student. Is there any way we can use it? She's like, yes, here's a pass for your student to use it. And that was sort of, you know, that sort of led into, uh, I guess, the work that we all do today. Mm. Yeah. And I want to get into, because there might be new listeners that didn't hear uh, my great interview with Emily about a year ago. So, you know, I want to back up a bit, just talking like from a learning design perspective, an ed tech tool that actually allows students to dive into content creation is almost the tip of the iceberg for lots of educators. So, you know, teachers are pretty familiar with Bloom's taxonomy and we sort of realize that we can't just hang our hats on having kids just keep consuming, consuming, consuming. Pretty soon we need to allow them some time as you are so good at Kwaku at actually getting in and creating stuff. And so Emily, tell us a bit uh, about Zoe and how it enables that. Yeah, of course. So, well, Zoe is all about content creation. It always has been. Um, it wasn't always for education at the beginning. Actually, Kwaku was the first teacher I met. And I would say thanks to him or because of him, now we are all about working with teachers full time. Um, but yeah, in a nutshell, so Zoe is a creation tool that you can use in the headset and you can build um, virtual interactive worlds inside the headset directly. So the students can go in, um, they can start adding 3D models into their scenes. And the kind of unique side of, of Zoe is that we have an interaction design system where they can actually build interactivity within their world. So they're actually building a full experience or a game that's interactive and they can decide what happens in their scenes. Um, and they can also do it together from anywhere now. So they can connect uh, with each other. So you could have a classroom in Asia connecting with a classroom in the U.S. and they can they can work together on projects. Amazing. And like Kwaku said, we'll get into some amazing features that I, I appreciate about Zoe a little later on. But let's let's go back to Kwaku because this for teachers, Kwaku, you know, you're you're atypical. For many teachers, this just it's it's mind blowing to them. They don't instinctively gravitate to the idea that oh, I'm going to grab this tool and I'm going to figure it out along with my kids and then we're going to use it. They just don't necessarily have the time or the confidence. Mm. It's kind of scary. And, you know, add in the idea of, you know, trying to get kids to do something productive, like tell a story or get the kids to use conceptual thinking and big ideas. You know, now we've really overwhelmed teachers. So, Tell us a, a bit more about what, what's the mindset that and advice that you can give teachers that are a little bit scared to get into VR content creation. 
So you said something interesting there. I don't, I don't know if I consider myself atypical for teachers. I, I think I consider the amount of freedom that I've had to work with students to be atypical. I think um, there are a lot of, you know, whether you're in a, a public or a charter setting, there are a lot of teachers who have these really amazing ideas, but they don't, you know, they either don't have the space or in some instances, the resources to pursue them. Um, and so I, you know, there's a, there's a piece there around, um, and I don't know if you have administrators who listen to your podcast, but there's a piece there around creating space for the teachers to, um, to sort of tap into these ideas, which is a bit of a trickle down effect because a lot of what I do is create space for students to do the same thing. Um, I, you know, I, um, I feel in general, I was not a good student. I wasn't a bad student. I just really wasn't interested in school. So um, I, I think part of my mentality is, well, what would have interested me? And what would have, uh, what would have made me passionate about what I was supposed to learn? Um, and so I try to extend that to whether it be students or like I work with teachers as well, as far as the stuff that they do. Um, and more importantly, because I wasn't a great student, I was not used to be, being the one who got everything right. And so I fully go into anything that I try uh, expecting to make a ton of mistakes. And that alleviates a lot of pressure. And there's a lot of pressure. That pressure, I think, still exists for a lot of teachers who feel that they need to, excuse me, they need to be the person who's the most knowledgeable in the room. They need to be the person who is right, that everybody goes to. And realistically, that doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in the workplace. You know, it, it doesn't exist in a creative space. You know, if you're a songwriter, you, you have to go back in, you have to edit your song. If you're a poet, you have to go back in, you have to edit your poet. If you're a writer, you're doing the same thing. If you're a scientist, you make a ton of mistakes until you have a breakthrough and you realize, oh, this is the path forward. Um, and so this is a long way of saying, uh, for teachers, I think the mindset would be, uh, essentially to give yourself grace and go in making mistakes and, and, um, and share that vulnerability with the students. And Emily, you've done some research around this too. And, you know, lucky for me, I got to meet one of your researchers and she met me in VR and, you know, we walked through a few things. What, You've been at this a while, Emily. What are some findings from you in regards to all the teachers that you've met and worked with? Yeah, of course. And we, you know, we've we've been talking, especially this year, quite a lot to teachers almost every week. Um, we set up a creator program for teachers now that we, you know, we, we meet with them every month. Uh, we also did a summer program with Kwaku um, in a school district in Milwaukee. And so there's been a lot of interesting findings around working with teachers from all over the, you know, the spectrum of teaching. So, um, you know, we had a woodworker, we, there was you know, marketing teachers. I have one who's doing criminology, you know, so none of them are the typical teachers who would do project-based learning or design thinking normally into their classroom. And so it's been very interesting for us to see. So how do we get Zoe into being that kind of open-ended tool where you can do anything, but then fit that into a 40-minute class. 
Um, this week we've been brainstorming with a physics teacher who's really interested in doing VR, but he needs to fit that into his 40 minutes. He really needs to, and he wants to have some level of content creation for the students, but he can't do it all from scratch because there's just no time. And if it, each week it's one topic. So he, they have to go through one topic week one, another topic week two. Um, and that has been really interesting for me to see, okay, so how can we do a middle ground where your students are creating content but it's framed by your lesson plan. And how do we as a platform facilitate that? How do we make it super quick for a teacher to you know, build up a lesson plan that's going to include creativity and some content? And it's not just a blank you know, 3D VR scene where you, know, you have to build it all and then take time to put trees there and stuff like that. So that mindset for me has changed a little bit, I think, since last year when we started. Um, and... I love the idea of students being able to start from scratch and learn, you know, how about to become creators, how to learn about all this stuff. But then at the same time, I'm also very interested in how do we embed that into all the other classes that are not meant for creation normally. And so, yeah, I think it's a middle ground. Like we have to meet the teachers halfway into what they're already doing. And then how do we provide something that's going to be easy enough for them to manage the students um, and to also confirm and what Kwaku was saying, try to see and, you know, get the teachers kind of let go and let the students do the work and not want to control all of it themselves. Like they, they don't need to know how Zoe works in and out. They just need to be able to use the tools we provide for them to manage, you know, a group of students doing things. So, um, hey, Craig, I just want to add something to the, to the end of that. And, I, you know, I don't know how many other ed tech CEOs you, you get to talk to regularly but very few of them can speak to the experience of teachers the way Emily just did. I just want to highlight that. Mm. And it's, that brings, I mean, it's amazing. And that brings up another point I wanted to make because uh, I've been in the Zoe app, you know, many months ago and I was recently in it a few weeks ago and I loved how the initial tutorial for students has changed over time. And so I want the listeners to be aware of this. Now, when you go in to do the initial tutorial in Zoe, it's highly focused on the interactive part and how, you know, you show up and it teaches you in a very uh, scaffolded process how to push a button to open a door and then you go outside and then it teaches you how to make this insect fly around this flower and then you have to go over to another scene and it teaches you how to make a windmill spin, which I see, and this is probably why Emily has also adopted this in her app, that that's, you know, the, the piece de resistance. That's what gets kids excited. I think most kids who are digital natives can probably grab a 3D asset and plop it into the virtual environment. What they do need a little bit of help off the get-go is just these interactivities, which is where you start in Zoe. And I love that. And maybe Emily, you want to speak about that a bit? Yeah, we've so the, the onboarding is something we wanted to put in for a long time, especially because it also allows the teachers to just get those students, they can just get started on their own and go through that like 10 minute onboarding. And it is focused on interactions because yeah, well, you know, everyone, plays video games. Kids play video games all the time. They know about interactivity. Some of them even already know how to code somehow, or some absolutely don't, but they're familiar with this, right? They they play games that are like this already. And so our interest is kind of also breaking down for them, hey, this is how this actually works. You know, when you're playing a game and you're 
pressing a button and something happens and the door opens and you have to put the key there or whatever. This is how it's built in a simple way. So I'm, you know, I'm very interested in that too. And um, the interaction side is always going to be our focus. We are going to be building more of those lessons um, and to and scaffold it even more. I think some of the feedback that we got is that the interaction site is absolutely awesome, but for some, at least for teachers, maybe sometimes it's a little hard. Like it, it's mm. actually the hardest part is the interaction. It always is, right? So if we can scaffold that a little bit more and go back to just the basics, all right, this is a VR headset. Here are your controllers. Here's how you move. Here's where you put an asset. And this stuff, we're actually going to add it back. But it's interesting that we started with the interaction because that's the key of the app. So of course, we're going to start with that. Um, and then, you know, scaffold a little bit more in, and then go into Unity um, also as well at one point. It's something we're, we're building towards um, too. Speaking of hard, so... Uh, I, I was a design teacher for many years as well, and so I'm familiar with the design cycle. And one of the hard things about content creation is how do you move a student from repeat after me? In other words, here, I'll show you the interactions, or here, I'll show you how it's done. But now, okay, I'm going to throw you in the deep end, and I want you to create something different or brand new. Kwaku, how, how, how does that happen? Do you just just throw them in the deep end or what are some strategies or tips you give teachers who, you know, I, I see a lot of coding experiences out there, but they're mostly just repeat after me. And there's no mm -hmm. big jump where you have to force the kid to be a little bit more creative or original in what they produce. Ironically, at least ironically for me, a lot of, uh, that methodology comes from, um, non-technical, experiences. So I'm going to give you this example. Uh, I used to live in Memphis. Now I live in San Diego. And so I have a friend here and he goes surfing a lot. And so I decided to go surfing with him. Going surfing with him isn't, hey, I'm going to paddle next to you and I'm going to show you how to paddle. And then you're going to paddle and then you're doing a great job. Great. Now I'm going to stand up on this wave and you're going to stand up on this wave because that really isn't possible in the ocean. And so instead, what he does is one, he makes sure that I don't drown which is the most important, but two, what he does is he's like, all right, I'm going to head out there. This is that little gap in the wave and I'm going to go for it. This guy's you know, he's surfed for a while. So he's really powerful and he could just paddle out. And then I join him an hour later when I get out past the waves. And then he's just like, all right, that was cool. You know, and this might help you and this might help you. The point is he gives me the ability to experience it and experience what I do wrong before he tells me what I should be doing correctly. Or if I'm doing something right, then he reinforces it so I know I should be doing it more. A lot of uh, this type of work, I think, involves that. And so you might we might call it experiential learning. You might call it play. You might call it putting kids in a low-impact environment where they can explore. Whatever it is, it involves that. Where do they get their sea legs? Where do they begin to understand, hey, this feels good. This doesn't feel good. I have a question about this. I'm not sure how this works. So people even call it on-the-job training. So that's one portion of it. The other portion of it is actually planning. If you're, if you're going to uh, write a story, you, you sketch it out. You, have, you know you have a beginning, you have a middle, and you have an end. And, you know, early on in, you know, doing this work and involves, you know, doing this work alongside Emily, um, she did, a, she, one year, I think it's my first year out in San Diego, we, we had a camp here 
uh, it was it was a VR and AR creation camp um, where we had our students here in San Diego, and we brought in students from China um, to work with our students. It was like sort of an exchange program, and Emily and her team came in, and initially I thought they were just going to show the kids how to use the software. And they're like, yeah, we were in LA, but instead they had white paper up where the kids actually had to pitch what their idea was and how it was going to work to the other students in the room, which was, and, and I was like, oh, well, why did I think of that? This is supposed to be my job. I'm supposed to be doing this. Um, but one, I, one portion of it is the experiential side. The other portion of it is how are you laying out your idea? How are you planning it? I mean, you, you do this podcast. I won't go into the, the secrets behind it. There are lots <laughs> of secrets if you're listening. Lots of magic. But there's obvious planning on your part for this. And then right before we got on, you're like, all right, great. This is what it is. This was the planning. But you have space to expand upon what I've laid out for you. It's essentially the same thing in the classroom. Yeah, I can reinforce that as well because there's if you get the students to think about what they're going to build before they're building it, it, it will help them tremendously. You know, they don't spend that much time in Zoe because Zoe is not that hard to use. So in the end, the trick is, all right, why do you actually want to build? It's the same if you're going to write a dissertation or any kind of, you know, other piece of content, you have to think about what you actually want to do and what you want to write. So we built them, you know, we built some frameworks to help you know, like planning documents and things like that. But just to get the students a little bit into what am I actually going to be building today? You know, what's the topic? What assets do I need? What is the user going to do in my experience? You know, and then that helps them kind of frame that out. And then once they go in Zoe, they can start building it. And then probably it won't work the first time. And then they can iterate back on it and then go back into, I mean, it's the way we worked as a studio, VR content studio, right? So we just apply that to um, to learning. It's It's very similar to what you would do in a professional context as well. And we don't want it to work the first time. We want them to fail yeah. because failing's great. You, I say this to my son all the time. You're going to learn way more if it does not work the first time than if it works. Then it's just, you know, it's, it's Wizard of Oz. It's like there's some magic that occurred. I just follow the steps, but I don't get what occurred. I don't know how this works. Emily, you talked about some teachers, uh, like I think it was a physics teacher example, who still has the mindset I think where the standardized test, the multiple choice tests tend to still be the driver of their lesson design. And then, you know, maybe they'll sprinkle in some creativity like using Zoe. How do we shift this uh, obsession with quantitative measurement? Because I, I get questions as a consultant where they're like, okay, you know, I, Tell me how my return on investment will be measured if you bring VR, Craig, into our school. And I say, well, we're not going to measure it using multiple choice tests. You know, so let's think of other ways we can measure how amazing a tool like Zoe could be for your school. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's a hard question because we're not doing, you know, we don't have that in the app anyway. You're not going to be answering multiple choice questions in Zoe. I mean, maybe a teacher could build that in if they really want it. I think some are trying to do this where, you know, depending on, you know, what's going on, you know, you can check this box or this box. Um, I think it's hard to shift this because also teachers don't necessarily have a choice, right? They, it's hard for them to find the time to make that shift. But if we can try to find that middle ground, maybe we can just plant the seed, right? So, you know, try this or 
do a workshop for a couple of days or try that in your lesson and then see if it sparks that, you know, that ability to, to go to go beyond. And of course, VR is great for empathy. It's great for collaboration, all those soft skills. It's what VR is good for, you know, in any case. Um, and I know it's hard to argue without the quantitative numbers, of course, um, but maybe you can measure other things, you know, how, you know, what field the students going after if they go to college. I don't know. There's probably other things in there that we can find and pinpoint to that does not relate to testing, but I'm pretty sure it will translate into better tests as well. There's no reason it does not, right? But it does not need to be through the standardized testing side of things. So what the physics teacher ended up doing, and it's the first physics teacher that actually doing creation in physics, because it's rare. Normally you just press play, you go through the experiment, either you made it work or either you didn't. And so the way he's thinking about it is he'll prepare his physics, virtual physics lab, you know, it'll be already kind of prepared. And then the students have to create the experiments. So they have that list of experimentation and the students actually have to build those using interactivity and using that. And then he'll use that part to see, you know, if they understood the, the topic or not. Um, so kind of a middle ground, you know, not the perfect one, but it, it's getting there. And of course, they are super excited about doing the from scratch stuff, but it's a question of, okay, I have to, you know, have to prove to my administration that this is working as well, right? I would I would add on to that. Yeah, I would add on to that and say that um, if you think about the um, the origin of these types of tests, like quantitative measurement, it's based upon your knowledge of an experience or a procedure, right? Whether it's an algorithm, uh, whether it's a written piece that you're analyzing and you're answering questions. Like, did you read the, did you read the story? Yes. And what was the plot here? Or what was this character doing? What better way to embed this knowledge in a student by creating an experience for them? So it's not something that they're guessing at. It's not something that they're, they're trying to deduce based upon the way the question's answered, but it's something that it's embedded because it's a lived experience for them. And there are lots of instances, like with this physics teacher, where people are looking to create to create something. When we, when you guys, when I, I joined the call, when I first joined the call, you were talking about textbooks and the manufacturers and the idea of learning something by reading it, and maybe seeing a diagram, as opposed to experiencing it, taking it to the next level, building the experience. If someone were to give all three of us a multiple a multiple test question on the process of driving a car. Would that be difficult for us to, to do well on? I'm not talking about random things like in California, if there's a red, if there's red on the curb, it means can you park there or can you not park there? If you're pulling up to, if you're pulling up to a red light, should you hit the brake or the gas? Why would you do that? It would be very easy for us to perform well on a multiple choice test like that because that's a lived experience we don't even have to think about anymore. And I think that. Um, is part of the appeal and part of the power of what programs like Zoe do for students in schools. Yeah, and there's things that we can help facilitate. You know, we can know there's, you know, we by embedding some kind of intelligence into the app and AI and things like that, that can also help kind of track whether, you know, students created something in the right way or the wrong way. Like we can help a little bit um, to facilitate the teachers in being able to actually, you know, in the end, grade what they need to grade, right? Because in the end, that they actually have to do it still, even if hopefully things will, will change over time. Um, but, you know, meet them halfway is always uh, what I'm trying to, to aim at. But there's there's ways to 
to help with that and and embed some intelligence into into the platform um, to support these these kinds of um, data analytics that are really needed to you know in the education uh, space. There's a growing market out there, Emily for VR content creation apps. So Engage VR might be one of them, Frame VR, co-spaces, especially for elementary kids. How do you ensure that Zoe is, you know, on the forefront of this pretty crowded marketplace? Yeah, very interesting question. I think we're just going to continue to do what we do. So there's kind of two folds to that is working with teachers all the time. I think it's very, we are very community oriented. So we're going to continue to do that. Um, we're definitely focused on the creation side, which which isn't necessarily the case for everyone. And in, everyone's doing it in a different way, right? Co-spaces is good for younger kids. So we have a lot of teachers who actually use co-spaces and then they transition to Zoe, right? So there's just different focus for everyone. Engage is awesome for many different things. They do a lot of enterprise stuff. Um, they're awesome at doing meetings, you know, and, and virtual meetings and virtual classrooms. Um, Zoe's going to be good for content creation. We're also working on a marketplace for teachers to be able to um, publish stuff that students are doing or that they're doing. Um, and now also embedding some generative AI functions into the app so that we can generate templates and lesson plans quicker into into Zoe. So that's I'm excited to see how teachers get their hands on that and and, and scale that out. So yeah, I think it's a lot about partnerships as well uh, on our side. Um, I'm focused on doing a lot of partnerships to help bring the technology to underserved communities and Taliban schools and continue to do that. Um, because you'd be surprised how many schools don't know about VR yet still. So there's Room to grow for everyone. I think at this stage, uh, we need actually more apps, better apps, you know, things that can be combined together so that teachers have a better, bigger offering. Maybe, you know, CoSpace is great for the younger kids. I haven't tried Frame yet, but I know it's great. And then they can embed Engage for a portion of what they're doing. Um, they have like their, you know, Victory XR has a lot of labs that they can use. And then Zoe's going to be good for content creation. So I think all these things are actually awesome if they can work together. Um, and one last point I'm going to make is something that we also have been wanting to do a lot more is being able to be more cross-platform between each other. And that's going to be something that will take time. But hopefully at one point we can kind of cohesively start having content created in one place and then published in another. Uh, there's no reason why you can have someone in Engage playing a Zoe game or, you know, things like that I think would be interesting in the future because how many you know, different version of the same content do we need? At one point, it would be interesting to also have publishers embedded into that. So, you know, co have more coherent um, proposal for teachers and educational institutions to, to work with VR. If there's, you know, more platforms, the better, I think. Um, and platforms that offer different, you know, value proposition is, is great. Yeah, the old, the old interoperability question, yeah. you know, it's a it's a tough one. And the other the other question that I'm sure Kwaku gets a lot from educators is is just what you alluded to, Emily, and that is, you know, you, your VR headsets shouldn't just have one app on them because they're they're probably not going to get used as much. You know, there has to be sort of a plethora of use cases. And you know, maybe Kwaku, you can talk about that. Besides content creation, how else do you envision the VR headsets either at your school or when you 
preach to other teachers that uh, you see them uh, as having superpowers? Uh, well, besides content creation, I mean, I think, and I don't know if these two things are different, but the concept of storytelling and sort of, um, and maybe I, mean, I think that's nuanced, the difference between them. But uh, what we were talking about earlier, the idea of like finding ways to motivate students to create is the idea of giving them a voice. Um, and the I feel the piece of storytelling is is sort of foundational to all of this. Um, you know, even with the physics teacher that Emily's talking about, he may not consider it storytelling, but in crafting his lesson, he's creating a narrative and a path that students are going to follow. You know, I think the major distinction, at least that I've experienced, is the concept of, of like animated VR creation versus 360 video. Um, and there are, few, there are a few programs that are kind of combining the two, um, but there are, some there are some instances where people just want to document as opposed to create, if you will, you know? Um, you know, I did a project of like uh, at this point, it feels like it's almost a decade ago for the UN where we, we went to Fiji and we filmed kids in 360 video talking about climate change. And it was partially because it was like, yeah, we wanted people to be able to experience it in VR and feel like they were in those jungles with the kids. But more and more importantly, we wanted people to experience what it was like to be in a place that was so beautiful but yet so fragile. And sometimes you can do that with, um, with tools uh, that are based in animation, but sometimes you want, you want it to feel and look as real as possible. But in either instance, there's a, there's a content piece or there can just be an assessment piece built into that, but there's always going to be a narrative, whether the narrative is the story that the students are telling or the narrative is the path that the teacher wants the students to, excuse me, to go down in order to learn their lesson. If you're thinking in terms of like a parable or something like that, there's always going to be a story being told in the way that uh, there's this really great book called the design of everyday things. And there's a section in it that talks about doors and doors with handles versus flat, like flat panels. And how many times have you been in a, in a, um, in a, like a, an entryway of a building and someone pushes on the door when they should be pulling. It is kind of embarrassing. It's kind of silly, but the story that that item is telling to the person as they approach it is wrong. If it's a push, it should be flat. If it's a pull, there should be a handle on it. And sometimes we lose the forest for the trees. We lose the aesthetic for the narrative of using that object. Good old Don Norman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm cognizant of time, so we're sort of going to wrap up here, and I'm going to get a little bit philosophical again for both of you. You know, there's there's this notion that we sometimes have to sacrifice one thing for another, and and maybe maybe sacrifice is inevitable. So moving forward, what are your struggles? I'll start with you, Emily, with the notion in VR space that you know you have to sacrifice one thing for another. How does that translate in the VR space? Ooh, that's an interesting one. Mm. I mean, well, I've, I told you before we started, I've been doing it, being in that space for 12 years now. So 
sacrificing something for another is kind of day-to-day life, right? You <laughs> just have to, you have to make choices and you hope you're making the right one, but uh, it's part of the creative process. I think if we hadn't, you know, been going through that market and that, you know, that space where things change a lot, hardware changes every five seconds, you know, thing, you know, that kind of unstableness of things, we probably wouldn't be where we are now because we made changes based on who we met. We make changes based on the reality of, to, you know, the day-to-day life of our users. So things change. It does have to be fluid. It's a, have a startup mindset, I feel like for, for me is, is part of that. And by, I don't know if it's sacrifice, it's more just, you know, prioritizing or making a choice versus another and that just, you know, moves you in a direction or another. So I, I find that more, you know, I'll just put that in a positive way of things, um, especially in the, in the, in that VR space is probably not more difficult than any other space. I feel like it's just different. It's just an exciting one. And for some reason, I can't stop being in it. You know, (laughs) it kind of pulls me in every time, just trying to, you know, the the magic of it and seeing, you know, what students and teachers are doing with it is very exciting. So yeah, not, not call it sacrifice, I would say. Huh. All right. Well, I was thinking two things. One, um, there is the sacrifice. So I was talking about storytelling and like the narrative that we create and all of that. There, a lot of times is the sacrifice of that control in order to gain buy-in. You know, you like, there are several times where I've thought like, all right, this student needs to do this, this, and this, they're going to achieve what they're going to achieve. But if I do that, then it's, it's, it's what you mentioned earlier. It's like, it's a paint by numbers experience and they're not really gaining anything from that. So there's a level of sacrificing that control over dictating to a student or a teacher, Hey, do it this way, as opposed to giving him the room to explore. Um, And then there's a bit of a mindset piece um, with a lot of, let's say, teachers who are reluctant. I will often ask the question, hey, what's the thing that you feel doesn't land for your students each year? The thing that you're never quite hitting the way you want it. It doesn't hit the way you want it to hit. There's always questions around it. Let's start there. And maybe that's prime for experimenting with something like VR or another piece of immersive tech. And to me, there's a bit of a sacrifice of mindset there where you're, you're doing, you're approaching this type of learning or integration from a place of, of uh, desperation or hopelessness, as opposed to saying, Hey, you know what, what you're doing is fantastic. Let's take it to the next level by adding some of this to what you do. Um, and it's harder to get people on board where they feel they're in a place that they're doing great or they're doing even fine. And so there's a bit of a sacrifice there where I don't think, I, I don't think tools like Zoe should be this thing where it's like, well, I can't get kids to learn. So I guess I'll try this. I think it should be viewed as, man, what I'm doing is great, but this is how I'm going to make it even better. This is how I'm going to improve my practice. This is how I'm going to prepare kids and I hate these terms, but for the jobs that they don't know exist yet, or giving them these unique experiences that they didn't even think were possible that I didn't get to experience at that at their age. I feel I have to sacrifice that just to get people to the point where they're brave enough 
or um, or frustrated enough to try it, I have to come at it from this other perspective sometimes. Mm, great wisdom. Listen, how do people get a hold of you guys if they want to learn more or dive into your amazing app or work with you, Kwaku, with your deep thinking? Tell us how people, one might get a hold of you guys. Uh, well, uh, for me, I, I think Twitter is probably the easiest. So it's at Kwaku1. I don't know who at Kwaku is, but you probably beat me by 10 minutes. I'm still a little <laughs> salty about it. If you're listening to this podcast, reach out to me. Maybe we can make some sort of arrangement. Um, but at Kwaku1 um, via Twitter is probably the easiest way. And if you're, if you're, if you're, uh, what is it, bearish or if you're not into Twitter, for uh, reasons that we probably don't have time to discuss on this <laughs> podcast, um, then you can shoot me an email at kwaku at vr-ed.org. Awesome. Emily? Yeah. So on our side, if you have a VR headset, just download Zoe like now, you know, if you have one, just, just give it a try. It'll take you a couple of minutes. So you can find it on the Metastore and just type in Zoe and it'll be there. Um, and to reach me and the team, you can write me an email directly. So emi at zoeimmersive.com. Um, and on our website, you can also check our education pages. Has a lot of info there. And you can contact us if you're interested to work with us. Wonderful. Thank you guys so much for uh, spreading the word. And, and more importantly, for me, especially who's been following this space for a long time, is setting the right direction. because you know, again, education is so slow to change. And you guys, I would say, are our change makers when it comes to your philosophy of how VR has these superpowers that we talk about a lot. So thanks so much. And thanks for being on the show. Craig, hey. can I say one more thing? Sure. Uh, we, Emily and I do amazing things individually. We do even more amazing things together. But there are so many educators and so many teachers and so many uh well i don't think there are other ceos like emily but there are other people in the edtech space that are also doing amazing amazing things um so i just want to highlight that and there's like too many to name but there are so many people it's not just us and i, I really i really want to highlight that and it's like we are influenced and we are inspired by so many other people who are doing great things as well well said good way to end Bye for now, you guys. Bye.